My name is Michael, and uh, I'm glad you are all here, uh, especially if you're here just uh, visiting maybe for the first time or you're just out-of-town guest. Uh, thank you for coming today. Uh, we are in the midst of a series. Uh, this is our fourth uh, message walking through uh, Paul's letter uh, to the church in Rome. And um, I'll be very honest today, not that I'm not every Sunday, but uh, this message in particular, as you can see the title, uh, Paul uh, heads into uh, content and subject uh, that is really challenging. We're talking about uh, today, I'm going to be reading and talking about God's wrath uh, towards sin, talking about hell, uh, talking about sexuality, talking about homosexuality. Um, and as I was reading and studying and praying and preparing, I was like, wow, there's just so much that Paul just puts right on the table. And uh, what I wanted to put on the table today is that uh, um, there's going to be stuff that you're going to hear, and uh, you're gonna, I'll read some scripture, and you're going to be really challenged uh, by, and it's probably going to make you pretty uncomfortable, pretty uneasy. Some of it might even frustrate you. Some of it might even make you angry. Um, and I'm okay with that, because I would rather make you uncomfortable get you a little frustrated, maybe even a little angry, um, so that you would be right with God, then rather not say things that need to be said or avoid some of the hard things in Scripture, uh, so you would just be happy and content, but yet still separated or distant uh, from God. So I preface that, uh, that this is some challenging uh, about, uh, I don't know how far we're going to get, um, I've got to verses, uh, chapters 1, uh, starting at verse 18, all the way through 32 prepared, but uh, we will see how far we go. Um, let me uh, read. This is Romans. Uh, I'm going to read a few verses in Romans uh, chapter 1. Start at uh, verse 18. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 17. Uh, this is something we had looked at last week, but verse 17 says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Keep in mind, verse 17, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Okay, Verse 18, the wrath of God, it's a big statement, we're going to unpack that. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse." Let me pray, and then uh, uh, there's a lot more verses we're going to get into, but I just wanted to start with those few. So, Father God, I, uh, this is challenging Scripture, uh, so I just pray, God, that uh, I would say nothing that's just uh, is not true, is not biblical. So, God, please uh, put a guard uh, over my mouth, protect my mouth from saying anything, uh, God, that would lead people astray. Uh, but, God, I do pray that our hearts would be uh, very open to you, our minds would be open uh, to what you have to say to us in this place uh, through this text. Uh, God, this is challenging, but I pray that we would be challenged. Uh, God, I pray that uh, against people 
just shutting down because they don't want to hear what you would have to say. So God, please give each of us, all of us that are in this room right now, uh, a willingness and just an openness uh, to hear what you would have to say. And God, I give thanks that you know every single person in this room by name. God, you know the condition of their soul. You know the condition of their eternal destination. Uh, And so God, I just pray that you would do what only you could do and speak to every single person uh, that is here in this place today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, before Paul talks about God's wrath, which is a pretty big subject, uh, one of the things that I'm very thankful for is before he presents God's wrath revealed, uh, remember verse 17, he presents the righteousness of God revealed. So before we are to understand the wrath of God, we are to understand uh, the righteousness of God that has been revealed, meaning we are not meant to uh, feel the wrath of God without first knowing and understanding that a righteousness from God has been revealed and provided uh, for us. So a question is, why go straight from God's revealed righteousness to God's revealed wrath? Like 17 is one of those verses, I'm like, oh man, that just warms my heart. I love it. Some more of that, please. Like at least a few more verses, but right from verse 17 to verse 18, a righteousness revealed, and then verse 18, a wrath of God that is revealed. And I think why Paul does this is unless we fully understand uh, how how good the good news is, we will never fully understand the bad news, meaning we need to understand really our condition and our bad, our, our sin and the consequences of sin before we could really fully grasp how good the good news of the gospel is. Does that make sense? He starts with the righteousness and he goes right to the wrath. He wants us to understand how good this is as the backdrop of the predicament that man is in. Now, question, we're going to be talking a lot about sin today. And so, I want to just ask the question, should sin, does sin deserve to be punished? Okay, how you answer that question kind of is going to dictate how you understand God's wrath. So I ask it again, does sin deserve to be punished? If you answer yes, then your next obvious question is, well, who gets to decide the punishment? Okay, If you want to know the answer to that question, well, then you have to say, well, who was sinned against? So if sin deserves to be punished, well, who gets to decide the punishment? Do you? Do I? Like, who decides? Well, the next logical question, I think it's logical, is, well, you have to ask, who got sinned against? Now, I would, you don't have to raise your hands, but I'm going to guess every single person in this room has been sinned against, means someone has done evil or wickedness or wrong to you at least once in your life. But I think one of the things that the Bible makes very crystal clear is that all of sin is against God. So you may have been sinned against, evil, wickedness, done wrong to you, but the person who has been most offended by sin, by any sin, by all sin, is God. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's the story of King David. King David sleeps with another man's wife, she gets pregnant, and in order to cover up his mess, his sin, he has the husband killed. And it's this big soap opera, big cover-up, 
until he gets discovered. And the first thing that he says when he gets found out, when he's busted, when it's revealed in 2 Samuel 12, 13, it says, I have sinned against the Lord. And you're like, wait a minute. You got this woman pregnant. Eventually the child dies because of you. The husband is now dead and there's this great conspiracy. And all you have to say is I sinned against the Lord. That's because David understood pretty clearly that sin, all sin, is most offensive to God. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't sin against other people, but the ultimate sin is against God. Consider Genesis 39. There's a man named Joseph. He's described as a good-looking man. And there was a woman. We don't know her name. Her name is, she's known as Potiphar's wife, and meaning she's married to Potiphar. And Joseph is serving as a slave, Potiphar. And she's trying to seduce uh, Joseph. Many, 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 many times she's trying to aggressively seduce this man to the point where she comes and says, come to bed with me. And in Genesis chapter 39, Joseph's response to her was, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? You're like, wait a minute. It's not sinning against God. You're sinning against her. She's someone else's wife, and you're sinning against the husband. What are you talking about? People in the Bible have a good biblical right understanding that all of sin is most ultimately against God. So question, if all of sin is ultimately sin against God, then how do you think God should deal with or punish the sin of humanity? How do you think God should punish it? Give you four options. What if God's mentality or his attitude towards sin was, oh, boys will be boys. Those crazy humans down there, they just, one day they'll figure it out. Like there's a lot of people, that's our mentality towards sin is, oh, boys will be boys. Really? Can you imagine if that's how God dealt with sin is the boys will be boys approach? What if he did it case by case? Meaning every person was just treated very differently. Some got, got this treatment, some people got this treatment. Now, I'm not proud to admit this, but my driving record is horrific. Like about 10 years ago, I had my license suspended because I had so many traffic violations on my license. And apparently, if you get so many points, they don't like that. And <laughs> And I remember at the time, this was not like last week, okay? This was a month ago. No, I'm just kidding. It was like 10 years ago. And I would tell people, oh, I got another speeding ticket. And there was so many times I would get from women, oh, yeah, I just got pulled over and I got off. And I'm like, what? How fast were you going? Well, I was going 50. I was only going 45. How did you get off? How many women, be honest, got pulled over and have gotten yourself out of a ticket? See, that is just wrong. Okay, I know women, you think it's, you have it harder being women, but there's no reason that you should get off for going 50 and I get punished. Can you imagine if that's how God did it? If he punished sin, be like, well, oh, that Davis guy, I'm just, he deserves it. Oh, but that girl over there, she just seems sweet. <laughs> what if God's approach to punishing sin was you do it once, you're dead. Like if you sin once, a laser beam straight shot from heaven comes down and just zaps you, you're gone. Straight to hell for you. You sin once, boom, you're gone. 
What if that was God's approach? Now, no one's laughing there. We're like, no, 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 we don't like that approach. <laughs> what if God's offered a payment plan? You pay this, you do, you know, kind of jump through these different hoops, then maybe I will consider receiving that payment as enough. What if any of those, boys will be boys, case by case, just kill all the sinners or offer a payment plan? Now, I think the obvious problem with any of these approaches, if God were to take, is sin still remains, sinners remain sinning, and God remains separated from his creation. So all of those, some of them funny and goofy, some of them pretty scary, all of those, sin still is there. Sinners keep sinning, and God is still separated from his creation because he's holy. So the question of what does God do with sin is really, like, how does he punish sin is not so much a reflection on you, it's a reflection on himself. And I want you to catch that. Like, God's approach to sin is not a statement against you, it's a statement about himself. If God did not punish sin, he's not just. Can you imagine if you went to court and you killed someone and the judge just looked at you and, and was like, oh, not a big deal. No one really liked that guy anyways. There would be no justice. Evil would prevail. If God does not punish sin, he is not just. There's no justice in God. If God does not punish sin or deal with sin, he's not loving. If my older son, Tristan, was just beating the tar out of Caden, and I just kind of sat there laughing, be like, oh, that was, here, next time try an uppercut. That will inflict a little more pain. That would not be loving for me to protect Caden from getting sinned against, and it would not be loving for me to let Tristan just go in the way of thinking it's okay to beat on his brother. So if God doesn't deal with sin and punish sin, his justice is at stake. His, whether he is loving is at stake. If you're familiar with the Bible, one of the things you'll learn real quick is that God is very concerned about his glory. And sin is an affront to the glory of God. You'll also see uh, that God is holy, meaning he's without sin, he's perfect. And so sin is an absolute affront to the holiness of God. And Starting in Genesis 1 all the way through the last chapter in Revelation, it is a message that God desires a relationship with his people, and sin gets in the way of that. So the question of how can a holy God have a relationship with sinners who are bent on sinning? How is that possible? Okay, this goes back to, I've already asked 20 questions, but the first one of how should God deal with sin? And the answer to that question is in Paul's Gen or, um, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed. If God does not demonstrate the full weight of his wrath on sinners, he's not God. John Piper said uh, this, I measure... Your love for me by the magnitude of the wrath I deserved and the wonder of your mercy by putting Christ in my place. If you get how 
powerful, how significant, how frightening and fearful the wrath of God is. If you get just how horrific it is, and then you start to understand what God did for you so you did not have to endure his wrath. Put it this way, the greater the wrath of God, the greater the love of God. You want the wrath of God to be so great because it speaks into just how great his love for you is. You want the the greater the wrath, the greater the mercy. My goodness, if I deserve that, and he granted me mercy or he granted me grace. This is a great God who's got great love, who's got great mercy, who has got great grace, greater God. If the wrath was just literally boys will be boys, a slap on the wrist, that is not a great God. That is at best a very questionable God with a small G, not a capital G. And this is something that uh, I've just been learning over the years. How much I absolutely actually understand just how offensive or grotesque my sin is to God. The more I understand just how and how aware I am of my offensive, grotesque sin is to God, then something happens within me. I don't grow in fear of God that he's going to zap me. I grow in my love for God, my gratitude towards God, and as Rob was talking about earlier, my worship of God, because I see exactly what God has done to provide a way for me not to pay and endure his wrath. Let me just ask this question. When you consider sin, and I'm not talking about like sin of the world and sin of humanity, I'm talking about your sin, okay? I don't think there would be anyone in here who would claim that they're without sin. None of us has the audacity or just the pride to say, you know, I'm completely perfect, never made any mistakes. I I would be shocked if someone said that. What we tend to do is put our sin on a a scale. Well, I'm a sinner, but I'm not as jacked up as the guy sitting over here. How horrific is your sin? As you consider it, is the mentality of, my goodness, I absolutely hate it. I absolutely just hate sin in my life. Or is it just a bad habit? I drink a lot of Diet Pepsi. I know that. I confess that publicly. It's way, it's too much caffeine. It's not good for me. Is that my attitude towards sin? Well, I know it's not good for me, but uh, a six-pack a day, it's, uh. How horrific is your understanding of your sin? If you understand the grotesqueness of it, then you'll start to catch a glimpse of the beauty of exactly what God has done. How many people have ever heard uh, this cute phrase, God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. How many have heard of that? Okay. I fear there is some truth in that. Okay. Not much, but some. My fear in a statement like that of God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin is this has created, by and large, a community of sinners who live under this impression that God is just as casual towards my sin as I am. Well, it's, God still loves me. It's just, 
it's not that big of a deal. Yes, I'm a sinner who sins, but eh, you know what? God still loves me. One of my professors at uh, a seminary I went to, uh, D.A. Carson, uh, in a great book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, said this, the cliche, God hates the sin but loves the sinner is false on the face of it and should be abandoned. 14 times in the first 50 Psalms alone, we are told that God hates the sinner. His wrath is on the liar and so forth. In the Bible, the wrath of God rests both on the sin and on the sinner. That's pretty hard, right? God hates the sinner? First 50 within Psalm 1 through 50, it says over 14 times, 14 times that, yeah, God does hate sin, but he is so opposed, he is so against using the language of hate the sinner. That's hard. I just want you to sit with that because I feel like that's been probably told to you a lot. Uh, God loves, loves the sinner, just doesn't like... If you're a Christian, meaning if you have a relationship with God, there is so much truth in that. But if you still stand opposed to God, you stand directly in the path of God's wrath. That's the reality of what Dr. Carson is saying. God's attitude is not casual towards sin, nor is it casual towards sinner. Another great book called The Gospel for Real Life by a man uh, named Jerry Bridges. He's written a lot of different books, but he said this, we must not lose sight of the fact that God's wrath is very real and very justified. We have all sinned and all sinned incessantly against a holy, bless you, righteous God. We have rebelled willfully against his commandments, defied his moral law, and acted in total defiance of his known will for us. Because of these actions, we're justly objects of his wrath. There is not one person who could stand before God and throw up the defense, well, yes, I'm a sinner, but my sin's not that big of a deal. There is not one of us. I just, I'm hoping you're catching that our sin is absolutely horrific. And the punishment for sin is God's wrath. Now, you can have two attitudes. Just I'm only in verse 18 so far. The wrath of God revealed. Your first attitude could just be one of pride, of arrogance, of who does God think he is to judge me, to discipline me, to have his wrath upon me. Let's be honest. Who does he think he is? That could be one attitude. And if that's the attitude, whether it's of someone who has that attitude here or people that you know, God's wrath remains on them. Or what I would hope is that your attitude would not be one of just prideful arrogance before a holy, perfect, righteous, just God. Your attitude would be one of humility and just say, my sin is great. God, what do I do? Have you ever just asked God that question? Literally bent the knee and just say, God, I'm not you, so what do I do? I realize I am a sinner, but now what do I do in light of that? Let me read again Romans 
1, 18 through 20. I'll read it slowly, but I just, I'm fearful that most of humanity cops the attitude of number one, of prideful arrogance. Who is he to say that of me? And I hope that you would model for this church and for the family and community and culture that we live in, one of just humility, of I am a sinner. It's offensive to God. God, what do I do? Romans 1.18 again, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, catch this, since the creation, so we're going all the way back to the beginning. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. If I were to ask you to raise your hands, guessing all of us would say, yeah, God's a loving God. How does, bless you, how does God's love work with God's wrath? Like, it contradicts, right? You can't have a God who's absolutely, completely, fully loving, but then a God who has wrath. It doesn't work. How do they coexist? I'm going to go back to something my professor said. Wrath, this is Dr. Carson, wrath, unlike love, is not one of the intrinsic perfections of God. Rather, it is a function of God's holiness against sin. I really want you to catch this next part. Where there is no sin, there is no wrath. But there will always be love in God. The only reason that there is wrath in God is because there is something to be wrathful for and towards. If we were without sin, we would never know of the wrath of God. But going back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, 7, and 8 specifically, when the decision was made to rebel and sin against God, that's when the function of God's holiness, meaning his wrath, was revealed. Separated from God, kicked out of the garden. If God, imagine this, if God wasn't angry, if he wasn't furious towards sin, why, would, why should I? Right? If, I didn't, if God didn't care about sin, if God wasn't absolutely angry, furious, or wrathful towards sin, why should I care? If he doesn't, why should I care? Or if God is not angry or furious, just wrathful towards sin, then what is the point of Jesus? What is the point of the cross? But the point is that God is absolutely wrathful, angry, furious towards sin. Now, I think we have in mind this picture of God just like foaming at the mouth and like he's just, you know, way out of control. Have you ever saw someone who just lost it and they lost it on you and you're like, all I need to do to stop this from them doing this is hold up a mirror to them, that they would see how absolutely ridiculous and silly they look. I don't need to fight back. Just give me a pocket mirror. Here's my response to you. 
Just look. That's what you look like. That's not God, okay? When we're talking about the wrath of God, okay, we're not talking about a God who's like annoyed with you, who's frustrated at you and be like, oh, when will that Davis ever get this? We're talking about anger, that God's wrath is very fearsome, but it's controlled, it's deliberate, it's measured, it's just. And his wrath is very consistent with his holiness and his love. Okay, back to a quote from a Gospel for Real Life. God's wrath, this is from Jerry Bridges, God's wrath arises from his intense, settled hatred of all sin and is the tangible expression of his inflexible determination to punish it. We might say God's wrath is his justice in action. Back to, I've lost train of how many questions I've asked you, but how can love and wrath coexist? You know how they beautifully are married together? If you want to see the love of God, you look to the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to see the wrath of God, guess where you look? You look to the same place where you see a demonstration of God's love. In one place, in one God-man, Jesus Christ, in one moment of time, God's love and God's wrath collide. Jesus demonstrates it, and Jesus fully, absolutely absorbs all of the wrath of God for those who would receive it and believe. Now, Paul says pretty clearly that the wrath of God is directed towards a group, towards someone or something. And he says very clearly the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness, meaning the wrath of God is showing up. It's being revealed against the ungodly and the unrighteous. But the beauty of, again, God's love and God's wrath is that the Bible makes clear that there's not one person who could say I'm perfect without sin, that I am a righteous uh, individual. Uh, And if you're a Christian, if you have received Jesus Christ, confessed him to be God's son, to be your savior, and confessed that you're a sin in need of a savior, the wrath of God has been completely absorbed in the person of Jesus, what he's done for you. If you haven't done that, The wrath of God is still on you. Why? Because you're unrighteous. You're ungodly. That's what Paul is saying. Who's the wrath of God for? It's for the ungodly, for the unrighteous. But last week, I just remind you, a righteousness has been revealed. Uh, John Piper said it like this. I'm going to hit you with a lot of quotes because this is hard stuff and it's just easier to much wiser men sharing these things with you. God is not content to leave all people under his wrath. I don't want you to have this picture that God is just like smiling from heaven, be like, wow, watch him burn. Get some marshmallows, Holy Spirit, and Jesus, we're going to have a bonfire. That's not God. God is not content to leave all people under his wrath, nor can he simply sweep sin under the rug of the universe. Therefore, His love and his justice conspire to make a way for sinners to be saved and God's justice to be vindicated. The answer is the death of Christ, of Jesus Christ. 
Who is God's wrath for? Who is God's wrath against? Who is God's wrath revealed? The ungodly and the unrighteous. So you have to ask the question, which camp am I in? Have I received the righteousness that's been revealed in Jesus? If yes, then Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. I want you to know that completely. I'm not standing in fear, thank you, that I will face God's wrath because Jesus did that for me. Not because I'm some great person. I'm a wicked, evil sinner. I know that. I'm not going to flex my spiritual muscles because they're small before an incredibly strong, holy God will look at my righteousness. I do not have any fear whatsoever that I will face God's wrath because Jesus did it. But if I don't know Jesus, if I've not received the righteousness that God's provided for me, I will be completely honest with you. The wrath of God remains on you. Okay? Religious people cannot stand before God and say, well, I was religious. You're still ungodly and you're still wicked. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. You either are righteous because you've received righteousness from Jesus and in Jesus, or you're still in the camp where God's wrath is being revealed, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, is God angry towards just all of sin and what Paul is teaching here, or is there one specific sin that Paul is honing in on that God is really, his wrath is being revealed against? And I actually think what Paul is teaching is it's not just a bunch of sins. There's one sin, okay, in Romans 18 through 20 that Paul points out. You know what the sin is? Those who suppress the truth. What does it mean to suppress the truth? Now, I'm roughly about 200 pounds. Margin of error of about plus or minus 15. Let's just stick with 200. If I were to sit on a big jack-in-the-box, and there was roughly about 400 pounds of pressure and I'm sitting on top of this box so Jack does not come out. I'm having to sit on this box, but everything in this box, Jack wants to come out. He's bigger, he's stronger. And I'm sitting on top of this box that is just trying to explode. Jack wants to come out in all of his glory. But what Michael is doing in his 200-pound frame is sitting on top of this box, and I'm I'm kind of holding it. I'm wiggling around. I am suppressing Jack from getting out of the box. What does it mean to suppress the truth? The truth of God has been revealed to each of us. It's in us. We have been created by God, for God, in his image. What it looks like for humanity, for you, for me, for all of humanity, to suppress the truth of God is for me to act like I could just put, keep pushing God down. He starts coming up, get down, get down. I don't want to respond to you. I don't want to hear from you. The sin that Paul is talking about is we've taken the truth of God and we have buried it deep down within each of us. Why does humanity do that? Why do we suppress the truth that there is a God, he is real, and he desires for us to know him? R.C. Sproul said it like this, he, being God, 
represents the highest possible threat to our sinful desires. That's why. If I let God come out, this is not a perfect analogy. analogy of, I'm not saying, don't quote me as, well, Michael said God's like a jack-in-the-box. No, he's not. That's a picture of what it looks like to suppress something that is within us and we're trying to push it down. Why we try to suppress the truth of God is because the reality of God, the truth of God would require me not to live my life for me, make it about me, to pursue every pleasure, every whim, every wish, every want. God, as R.C. Sproul said, the highest possible threat to our sinful desires. Now, Paul goes on. Lots of people are going to argue, well, I don't know God. God hasn't revealed himself to me. That's, you know, he may have revealed himself to you, but I don't know what you're talking about. That's the argument that the community in Rome, that culture, but you know what? In 2,000 plus years, that argument hasn't changed. The argument of how can I be accountable to a God that I do not know? How can I be held accountable, endure the wrath of God to a God I've never met? God is not revealed himself to me. So I have an excuse. I didn't know. This is what Paul is clearly saying in these few verses. There will not be one man or woman who's ever lived at any point in time in history that could have the excuse of, I did not know. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. doesn't matter what gender it is. doesn't matter what faith background you grew up in or what country, what continent you come from. All of humanity is without excuse. No one could ever say, ever, I didn't know. That's not a legitimate excuse. So it's obviously begging the question, is it possible to know God? Is it possible to know God? Now, if you answer yes to that question, those three little letters, not two, three, change your life forever. Do you know why? Because if you acknowledge that there is a God you know what? You're now accountable to him because you're not him. And if there is a God who has created you, you're the created, he's the creator, you're responsible or held accountable to him. Okay? That's the yes camp. Now, if you're of the no camp that it's just not possible to know God, Paul says in verse 19, not only has God revealed himself, but he's made it very plain to us meaning his revelation is not like some big secret, covert stealth operation where you have to have a degree in astrophysics to potentially, possibly fathom that there is a God. Don't you love how Paul says, he's made it plain, like anyone can see it. Educated, uneducated, fool, wise, whoever, it's plain. John Calvin said this, By saying that God has made it plain, he means that man was created to be a spectator of this formed world, and that eyes were given him that he might be looking on so beautiful a picture, be led up to the author himself. I was created by God, for God, to know God, be in relationship with God, and worship God, but to just to sit back and open my eyes and say, wow, Look at what God has done. It is just insane to me that 
anyone would ever just open their eyes once and look out at the created order, to look out at the universe and say, yeah, it's uh, by random chance. Johannes Kepler, who is known as um, uh, the father of modern astronomy, uh, popular or most known for his laws of planetary motion, made just an incredible argument of you cannot look at the ordered universe and decide or declare that there is no God. He went on to say this, the undevout astronomer is mad. This is the father of modern astronomy. The undevout astronomer, it's mad, meaning you're just, you've, something's wrong in head and heart where you can't just look out at the created order and say, you know what, there is a God and I'm not him. Now, some of my favorite inventions, the microwave. I, you could explain to me how the microwave works but I'm amazed that I can put in a cold plate of food, press a few buttons, and like 30 seconds later, I got a hot meal. I don't know what happens in that magic box, <laughs> but never would I approach that magic box and just declare, oh, that's just, I would immediately say, someone put some thought into this magic box. There is an engineer, there's a design, there's an idea, there's a purpose in this magic box. Planes. I don't know how planes stay up in the air. You can explain, well, it's actually the wind. I get that, but I don't get it. Have you ever seen how much a plane weighs? It's phenomenal. I would never look at a plane and decide, you know what? Yeah, that's just, that's by accident. There's no intentionality. There's no engineering. There's no thought. There's no creativity. I would never look at a microphone I think microphones, I was talking to a friend this week, okay, I'm speaking into this little thing on my ear, okay, this is phenomenal to me, it's traveling 75 feet from this cord attached to me wirelessly, by the way, through this little black box, up through that ceiling, all the way back to the soundboard where it's getting mixed, so I can sound a little bit more tough, then the equalization of the sound shoots all the way back through the wires, through, through the ceiling, back here, instantaneously. I would never look at the sound and be like, yeah, random. That's amazing. It's amazing to me that I can look at a microwave and an airplane and a microphone and declare there was a creator. Like someone had, there's, someone's behind this. We don't do that with anything in the created world except with the creator of the world himself. If I can attribute creation and design, or creator and design, to a plane, a microwave, and a microphone, how is it possible that anyone could just look out the human body alone, the human eye, the majesty of this creation, and declare, yeah, there's, there's really no God? Paul says, there's no one who will ever be able to say that God has not revealed himself through his creation. Now, Paul is not teaching that everything there is to know about God can be known in the creation. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that humanity is without excuse. No one could ever say that there is no God. Now, the question is, but people do. So why do people 
come to the conclusion, and there's a bunch of wise, smart people in our estimation who make these conclusions. How can you conclude that there is no God? Scientists, doctors, just well-studied, educated people. Why? Because the jack in their box, they're sitting on top of it, and they continue to suppress the truth further and further and further down. This is the sin where God's wrath is being revealed, not against just all of these sins, but the one sin that Paul is picking on or pointing to is I'm suppressing in me the reality that there is a God. And the road that Paul walks down is if you are one who suppresses the truth of God, the road that awaits the things on that road awaiting for you is one who is given over to a depraved heart, a depraved body, and a depraved mind. Romans 1 says this, verse 21, 23, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. It's amazing the descending order of our depravity. Started with images made to look like man, then flying things, then things that crawl on four legs on the ground, and then eventually things that don't even have legs, they slither around on their, on their belly. Rather than worshiping and giving thanks to God, those who suppress the truth of God become fools. And in our foolishness, we make man-made things to worship. Why do we worship? Because we were created by God for God to worship God. And when I suppress the truth that there is a God to be worshiped, and I keep pushing that down and pushing that down, the desire to worship, to give praise, to give adoration to someone or something is so great that I will begin to create things, goofy things, a statue. Ah, yes, this I worship. To look at an animal. Ah, yes, I know dogs are great, best animals ever, okay? So, but worship a dog? To look at a bird flying in the air and that's your God? To look at a snake, a reptile slithering on the ground and declare my worship is, is for him. He or she is my God. Now, I, I know in modern postmodernity that we live in, we are too educated, we're too wise to put people on sticks and flying things and declare them to be our gods. So I realize we're not putting things out in front of us, our little Buddhas, and bowing down to them. But the reality is we still have idols. They just change. They don't look like maybe birds and reptiles and animals or statues, but we all have idols in our life. And so the question obviously becomes, well, what ultimately is an idol? Why were they making birds and reptiles and worshiping these things? Martin Luther said this, whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that's your God. Whatever your heart just goes to, whatever your 
um, mind relies on, whatever you rely on, that's your God. So many people, relationship, that's your idol. If I could just get a boyfriend, a girlfriend, life would be so much better. So relationship is your idol. I don't like my job if I had this job where I could start getting more respect, more honor, more money, then I would have this fulfillment within me. I would have joy and whatever. That's my God. Pick your idol. Any hedonistic pleasure, sexual fulfillment, any alcohol, any drug, I mean, what the idols, there's enough idols to go around. And when we don't, can't find one, we create one. And there's got to be a, come, a point in time, and I hope it's today, where you say, enough suppressing the truth, and I smash my idol. So whether it's career, whether it's money, whether it's children. Parents, did you know that children can become an idol for you? Everything that you missed out on your childhood, you relive through them. Why? Because they're your little idols. All that stuff that you want, that fulfillment, that joy, whatever, is now found in them. So when your kid doesn't perform, respond in the way that you want to, your little idol is not doing what your little idol should do. And you're disappointed. And so you find a new idol. So the sad reality is we all have idols. Comes from suppressing the truth of God in us. And I think one of the things that the Bible warns you of is whatever you worship, you will become like. Jeremiah actually says this in chapter 2. He says, this is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Whatever you follow, whatever you give yourself to, you will begin to look like that very thing. You will take on those characteristics and those attributes. And the point is, when we worship God, we begin to look like the God that we have been created in His image. I'm going to stop there. Not because I don't want to tuck, uh, touch the next eight verses because they're really challenging, but because the clock says 12 o'clock. I cannot help but tell you these few verses that we have looked at. God made clear that there is a righteousness from God, from heaven, that has been provided for you so that you do not have to endure the wrath of God because we suppress the truth of God and begin worshiping other gods. So I will finish with this. What choice have you made? Is the wrath of God still on you? Rightly so, where God is just in having his wrath on you because you're still in sin. You are still ungodly, unrighteous, because you've not received from God the righteousness he's provided for you. Martin Luther said this, Christ took our sins and the sins of the whole world, as well as the Father's wrath on his shoulders. And he has drowned them both in himself, so that we are thereby reconciled to God and become completely righteous. There is a righteousness revealed and a wrath revealed. Where are you standing? And if you think I'm just quoting a bunch of dead authors, do you know what John 3.16 says? 
How many people are familiar with John 3.16? Raise your hand. Okay, you either are getting familiar with your Bibles or you're watching too much football. How many are familiar with John? And we like John 3.16. Why? Because the love of God. It's demonstrated. He loves the world. He sent his son to die for. Right? We love that. How many are familiar with John 3.36? 20 verses later. This is what Jesus says. And this is the choice you, I, must make. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That's Jesus. Jesus was a master of putting choice and decision before people. Will you follow? Yes or no. Will you repent? Yes or no. Will you choose life or will you choose the wrath of God? Yes or no. We are without excuse. There is a God. You know you're not him, so therefore we're accountable to him. You can suppress that truth deep down inside you, but you will still stand before God and give an account. My account to God will be, I received the righteousness you provided for me in Jesus. That's all I got. That's all I have going for me. What will be your answer? Did you receive the righteousness or are you ready to receive the wrath, which is eternal separation, torment, and hell forever? One more quote, and again, it's from the Gospel for Real Life. Christ exhausted the cup of God's wrath. For all who trust in him, there is nothing more in the cup. It's empty. This is why I'm thankful for the doctrine of the wrath of God, because it points to his justice. It points to his holiness. And I'm thankful that God in his godness said, I will pay the penalty for my wrath so that his justice would be shown. His holiness would be protected. Isn't that amazing? Everything that was in that cup of wrath was literally poured out on the cross behind me. And those who would receive the cross and receive the one on the cross being Jesus, he absorbed the full, not just part, not just some, not a little, and not even a lot, all. We're going to celebrate communion. And communion is a time for Christians, people who have said, I received the righteousness provided for me from God in Jesus on the cross. If that's you, if you've made that decision, then today, more than any other time, come up with this incredible sense of gratitude that the wrath of God, have been you've been spared from it because he took it for you. And if you've not made that decision to receive the righteousness from God that's been provided for you, I'll just be honest, what are you waiting for? I have to believe God's talking to you. I have to believe God's speaking to you, saying, you know what, I'm talking to you. He wants you to receive his righteousness. Do that today in this place. Pray to God. I confess, I am a sinner. Your wrath is on me, but I receive your righteousness. And then come and celebrate communion for the first time and take a piece of bread and dip it in the wine or juice and say, Jesus, thank you for enduring the full wrath of God so that I do not have to. Father God, I give you thanks that your love is great. 
that your mercy is great. God, that your grace is great. And God, I give thanks that there would be no wrath to be revealed unless there was sin. But God, because there is sin, you revealed yourself to humanity as Redeemer and sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem, to reconcile. God, I give thanks that Jesus Christ has fully, completely, absolutely absorbed your full wrath because of my sin. God, I give you thanks. I deserve that wrath, but your son took it for me. God, if there's someone here that is still in the camp of not receiving a righteousness from you, God, please open their hearts to respond to you in this place today. And God, if there's any sense of just pride, I pray that you just crush that right now, where we'd humble ourselves and say thank you for what you've done for us.